Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. If these resources have been a blessing to you, we would be honored if you would consider making a donation to our church building fund. To learn more about this unique challenge ahead of us and to partner with us for a gospel legacy in Missoula, please visit achurchbuilding.com. That's achurchbuilding.com. Let's pray real quick. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you once more um, for coming to your word. You say in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so in our lives, there are so many things we think that we need. There's so many things we think we need right now at this moment. Things buzzing in our pockets, things weighing on our minds, um, things burdening our hearts. But this, Lord Jesus, this word is what we need. This word is your word given to us by grace. So may it be um, fruitful for what you've designed it to be. We pray this in your name. Amen. So we are uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, and we'll talk about that in a second, but it's part of the Bible, part of the Old Testament, which is often called the law. So in order to uh, set us up for what's going to come, I'm actually going to read some investment law for us this morning. And I want us to read, uh, you think I'm joking, but I'm not, uh, I'm not that good at jokes, from the, uh, the Security and Exchange Commission, part of what they call Rule Number 156. And this is what it says. It's a rule that prohibits intentionally spreading misleading and Uh, information to investors, people who are looking to invest in stocks, and it says this, it prohibits representations, whether expressed or implied, about future investment performance, including representations as to the security of capital, possible future gains or income, or expenses associated with an investment, representations implying that future gain or income may be inferred from or predicated based upon past investment performance, or portrayals of past performance made in a manner which would imply that gains or income realized in the past would be repeated in the future. Let's pray. (laughs) Basically, what it's saying here, it's calling you to not believe the lie, put simply, that past performance predicts future success. Past performance does not predict future success. That's what they want you to know. Just because your parents made an investment that worked out doesn't mean it's going to work out for you. Just because a guy you traded for in fantasy football had a big week last week, it doesn't mean he's going to have a big week this week. Just because successful person X got that degree doesn't mean that you with that same degree will have the same level of success. Past performance doesn't predict future success. But what's interesting, when we step back and look at laws like this, we actually realize that legislators are trying to legislate our hearts. They know how our hearts are factories of hope and how more often than not, they're factories of false hope. Factories that hope in things that do not last and lead to harm both personally and even economically. You see, we live in a world which has shifted From commercials, when you see them now, it's no longer an expert in the field talking about the product you're buying. Instead, it's a fellow consumer, just like you, sharing their experience. Marketers know how suggestive we are to the claim, it worked for me, it's going to work for you. They know we buy that hook, line, and sinker so many times. Can you imagine how easy life in our world would be if past performance could predict future success. 
Just think with me. If everything we saw in the past that was successful, we could have and know it will be successful in the future. Think of how easing parenting would be. There'd be no unruly third, middle, or second child. We nail it with the first, and it's all roses from there. Think of how wonderful that first date is where everything goes perfectly. You just let your guard down now. You know this is a sign that this is a perfect and enduring relationship and nothing could ever go wrong because the first date was great. Think of it in terms of perhaps you're in college and you're writing a paper or your thesis and you just hit one of those paragraphs that you just nail it and everything that comes after that is just like academic gold pouring from your pen. Life would be so good, wouldn't it? In a world of all these competing desires and products, we could pretty easily be able to look out and see those which will bring devastation and those which would bring delight. If past performance could predict future success, life would be a breeze. And a couple weeks ago, we started the book of Deuteronomy. And the thing we saw in our first week in it is that this book is actually a sermon a sermon given by Moses, the leader of God's people, as the nation of Israel is on the banks of a river about to cross over into the promised land, the land they always dreamed about. It was in the promised land where God promised to give them rest with one another, rest from their enemies, and rest inside of him. In the promised land, there would certainly be new challenges, there'd be new adventures, there'd be new investments, And it was in the face of those opportunities that Moses wanted them to understand the wonderful reality that comes in being somebody led by the God of Scripture. There's something unique about this God and his relationship to his people and his presence and his rule over that people that stands at odds with the whole experience we have with the world. And as Moses is encouraging his people to cross the river, to go into the promised land, he tells his people the unthinkable. He says to them, past performance always predicts future success if you're following the God of the Bible. Past performance always predicts future success when it comes to the God of the Bible. The SEC and other legal bodies know how they need to regulate these things because people and products quickly fail, but God doesn't. God has never failed his people, and God never will fail his people. And so it's in looking back that Moses wishes to push them forward. And what Moses wants you to see, what he wants you to experience, and what he wants the people 3,000 years ago to experience are the same thing. And that's this, that the key to life in the promised land is to remember that God's faithfulness will never lead you astray, even if it leads you to fearful places. God's faithfulness will never lead you astray, even if it leads you to faithful places. And to do that, he's giving us a history lesson. Chapters 1 through 3, Moses is giving a history lesson to explain how Israel got to where they're at right now. Our text today, it's like a five-year-old girl's birthday party. There's glitter everywhere. God's faithfulness is everywhere in this text but it comes on the heels of Moses reciting Israel's catastrophic failures. As simple as it sounds to us, believe in God, trust God, know he's faithful, what our experience in this world shows is that often it's hard to respond to God's faithfulness rightly. We, like Israel, don't listen well, or we listen well and then we rebel. We disobey. 
we think God unable to do what he says he would do. And what Moses is showing his people is this doesn't lead to flourishing. Disobedience never gets you what you want. And as Moses concludes his brief history of Israel today, he's going to show us that regardless of what lies ahead, whether it looks simple or whether it looks scary, you must learn the faithfulness of this God. You must know this God. Whatever experience you have in your life right now, Moses wants you to know how faithful the God of Scripture is if you see him rightly. What we're going to do in chapters 2 and 3 today, I made mention of this last time we were here, but we're going over a large portion, and this will kind of continue through Deuteronomy, so we're not going to read the whole text. You're welcome for that. But what we are going to do is kind of jump around, and so I encourage you to have your Bible open if you have it. Um, It doesn't even all fit in the bulletin, so it's not there. If you have a phone, you could do it, but that'll be a little clunky still. If you don't have a Bible, grab one in the back, bring it next week. We want you to have that, but we're going to kind of jump around today. And as we're doing that, we're going to kind of look and see from a big picture what it is that Moses wants us to see in light of God's faithfulness. And there are three things we're going to see today as it relates to our experience and God's faithfulness. The first is that God knows your wilderness. The second is that God knows your enemies. And then the last is that God knows your future. When it comes to seeing God as faithful and responding rightly, we must know that God knows our wilderness, he knows our enemies, and he knows our future. And so let's start this by looking at the first eight verses of Deuteronomy chapter 2. Then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. So those, we already know something's going wrong. They just came from the Red Sea, and now they're going back. As the Lord told me, this is Moses talking. And for many days, we traveled around Mount Seir. Then the Lord said to me, you've been traveling around this mountain country long enough. Turn northward and command the people. You are about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau who live in Seir, and they'll be afraid of you. So be very careful. Do not contend with them, for I'll not give you any of their land. No, not so much as for the sole of your foot to tread on, because I've given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession." You shall purchase food from them with money that you may eat it. You shall also buy water from them with money that you may drink. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years the Lord has been with you. You have lacked nothing. So we went on away from our brothers, the people of Esau who live in Seir, away from the Arabah road to Eloth and Ezion Geber. We turned and went in the direction of Moab. So if you remember, we had Scott here from uh, Cornerstone LA last week. It's a week before we were in Deuteronomy chapter 1. And in that passage, Moses opens up this wonderfully inspiring sermon by recounting failure after failure after failure after failure. The people were so close to getting the wonderful trifecta of Scripture. They were going to be God's people, in God's place, in God's immediate presence. They're right there. But just as soon as they got there, everything fell apart. That was, we learned the importance of this place called Kadesh Barnea. Kadesh Barnea was the southern door to the promised land. And when they got there, they refused to go into the land. They got to the door, they sent spies in, the spies came back, brought mixed reports, and they refused to go. And so God punished them for their disobedience. And his punishment was, just as the spies spent 40 days in the land, you Israel will spend 40 years wandering around in the wilderness. And this text now picks up at the end of that 40 years of wandering 
And God says, turn north. Let's go north again. You've wandered around long enough. Now's the time to do it. And so what we're going to see in our text today is that Israel starts in Kadesh Barnea, door number one to the promised land. In verse one, we saw they go back south and they're going to wander in the south part of the Sinai Peninsula. But then it ends as they're going to be going north, further north, up past Kadesh Barnea to door number two into the promised land. And so what we're seeing is we're going from wandering in the wilderness to welcome map part two. What's going to happen? Moses is setting us up for this. And already in this passage, in seeing the failure, the wandering, and then the return, we're already beginning to see God's faithfulness to his people. We're beginning to see the kind of gracious God that this God is. And this is our first point today, that God knows your wilderness. God knows your wilderness. Look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 7, which we just read. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness these 40 years. The Lord has been with you. You have lacked nothing. So yesterday was my oldest son's seventh birthday. And despite it being his birthday, he still was a big brother. And his sisters did something once. He responded in such a way where I had to say, oh, I need to go to your room. You need to go sit on your bed. And so he went away. And if you're a parent, you know exactly what happened next. You lost track of time. <laughs> like 30 minutes later, Owen comes out, and he's like, Dad, can I come out now? And I was like, this was the exact time that I thought you would be ready to come out of time out. And here we see Israel, who is in the most historically warranted time out of all time. No one rebelled like Israel had rebelled to this day. And yet, God had not forgotten them. He is a much more faithful father than we are to our children. Even when he is disciplining us, God does not forget us. God does not forget to come back and say, it's time. It's time to go. It's time to turn north and try again. What a wonderful truth that we have a God who knows these things, who does not forget and delay and leave us, but comes back even when we have broken covenant with him. And he wants the audience to know this because here at this time, as Moses is preaching to the people of Israel, the audience is divided up into two segments. Segment one are those who were over 40 years old, and these are the people who were under 20 years of age during the Exodus. They were under 20 years of age. They were teenagers when God inflicted, afflicted Egypt with the plagues, brought them through the Red Sea. They were the ones who were at Kadesh Barnea, and at some level, regardless of their age, they were part of this rebellion. They saw the whole 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. That's group one. But then group two are those who are under 40 years of age. And those are the people who weren't in Egypt, who didn't see the Red Sea, and were, who weren't even around. They weren't even a glimmer in mom and dad's eye at Kadesh Barnea. And yet, this was their wilderness. They were affected by the sins of others. And I imagine you can easily find yourself in some sort of space like this, where because of your own sin, you now bear the consequences of it. Or because of the sins of others, You've been oppressed and afflicted in specific ways. Or you know, as many of these Israelites did, that sometimes when you walk in a wilderness, you encounter the failings and the hurts of life 
in a broken world. We all encounter these things. And when we do, it's really easy for us to think in terms of those investment terms again, isn't it? We could look back and say, yeah, God was good then. God was maybe even great then, but he can't be good now. Not in this. God can't know what it is that I'm going through. But here we see God knows you're going through this wilderness. Not you are going through this wilderness. He knows your individual going through this wilderness. He knows it. And he is still a gracious God. He cares about it. And he wanted you and he wants the Israelites to see the same thing. That even in that wilderness, through your sin, the sin of others, or life in a fallen world, God has not forgotten you. He hasn't. The people of Israel know this. It was in their wandering, in a wilderness, in the desert, aimlessly, the manna fell from heaven in the mornings. Quail wandered into camp and jumped on their barbecues at night. In the day, there's a cloud that led them. And not only a cloud to be like, hey, here's where we're going, let's go there, but a cloud that covered them and protected them from their enemies. There's a pillar of fire at night. Very few armies choose to go attack a people guarded by a flaming pillar of fire at night. God was so incredibly faithful to them. You may go through the wilderness itself, but if you are a child of God, and for us that means if you are one who is found by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, then God will not forget you, even in seasons of discipline. And if God is faithful to remember us, even in our brokenness and in our sin, then wouldn't he also be faithful to remember us in moments of restoration? When he begins to say like he did to this people, turn north, let's go. You see, there's this wonderful tension in this text because here we have people who are finally where God wanted them to be. But it took them 40 years to take a journey that should have taken 11 days. Something went wrong. But at the end of all the things, here they were again, right back where God wanted them to be. And here we see two truths about our experience with God. And the first truth is this, is that sometimes it takes longer to get to where God wants us to be because of sin. Other people sin against us. We sin against other people. We live life in a fallen world. They're speed bumps. They're sand traps. It slows us down and it's never good. That's the first truth. But the second truth is this, is that if we ever get to where God wants us to be, it's always and only because of grace. The first thing is sometimes sin slows us down from getting to where God wants us to be. But the second truth is if we ever get there, it's only because of grace. The people of Israel didn't unsin in the wilderness. They didn't find a time machine under a bush and go back and change all of their unfaithfulness into faithfulness. Instead, what happened is God was gracious. God was kind to them. He promised to bring them into the land, and he promised to give them an experience with himself, and God is faithful to do it even in the face of unfaithfulness. And we see how faithful he is as he begins to give laws, which seems ironic. When we encounter laws, we think of our faithfulness, but when God gives laws, he actually wants us to think of his faithfulness. That's the tension all through the book of Deuteronomy. And what we're going to see is uh, Moses is going to give instructions 
God's going to give them to Moses. Moses is going to give them to the people as to this journey, right? Going south and then going back north. And over the course of chapters 2 and 3, Israel is going to encounter five kingdoms. That is Edom that we're going to see here in a second, and that's the land that belongs to Esau. There's the kingdom of Moab. There's the kingdom of Ammon. There's the kingdom of Heshbon. And there's the kingdom of Bashan. People live in this land. That's the point that God is making. And God tells them when it comes to Heshbon and Bashan, we'll see that in a second, go fight against them, go contend against them. But to the people of Ammon and Moab and Edom, God's going to say, don't fight with them, just pass through their land. Now why? Well, let's look with me and see if you can tell why God is telling Israel not to contend with these first three kingdoms. Look with me at verses 4 and 5. Command the people, so this is God telling Moses to command the people this, You're about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir. They will be afraid of you, so be very careful. Do not contend with them, do not fight with them, for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as the sole of the foot to tread on, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. Okay, so that was Edom. Now let's look at verses 8 through 9. Then we turned and went in the direction of the wilderness of Moab. And the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for possession, because I have given R to the people of Lot for possession. Look ahead to verses 17 and 19. The Lord said to me, Today you are to cross the border of Moab at R. And when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot as a possession. Do you see the theme? Why is it that for these first three kingdoms, they're just to pass through? They're not to fight? They're not to contend, even though these people will be scared and probably stand at the borders with swords? Because God has given those kingdoms to other people. To who? Well, Edom and the area of Mount Seir, he gave to Esau. And then we see in Moab and Ammon, they were given to the descendants of Lot. God says, I'm giving it to them. You can't have it. Now, who are Esau and Lot? Esau was the brother of Jacob. Jacob later got his name changed to, lights are starting to flash, Israel. Jacob was the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob was one of the key patriarchs of Israel itself. But here's the irony. Was Esau the chosen one of promise, or was Jacob the chosen one of promise? Jacob was, not Esau. Jacob is who God promised to give a land. And who was Lot? Well, Lot was the nephew of the other token patriarch of Israel, Abraham. But was the promise of a land and a people given to Lot? No. It was given to Uncle Abe. So what do these two people have in common? What they share in common is that neither of them were part of God's explicit covenant people, and yet each of them were given by God a land for their possession, which God's chosen people can't even take away from them. Do we see why Moses is now beginning to recite this to these people? If God gave them their land, if God won't even let you take their land, if he is protecting their land, do you think he might protect yours? 
do you think he would be able to be as gracious, if not more gracious, to his covenant people than to these people who are just getting a general grace? If Esau got it, why can't you? If Lot got it, why won't you? If God was faithful to them, how much more will I be faithful to you, God says. Do you hear maybe the New Testament version of this, where Jesus is preaching about us being anxious of things, and he reminds us of the God who is always faithful? Look at Matthew chapter 6, verses 26 through 33. Look at the birds of the air. Look at Lot. Look at Esau. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So I want you to know that whatever it is you are going through, this God is able to bring you out of it. Whatever season it is that you are in, God brought you to it, and it is only God who can bring you out of it. Now, how do we know that? Because even when I say that, you can think about the context, the situations, the relationships that you're in. You can maybe see how you got there, but you might not be able to see how you can get out. But this is where Moses continues to express God's faithfulness, and this is the second point. God knows your enemies. He wants us to not only look back and see how God was faithful, he wants to look into our current situation right now and see how God is faithful. He not only knows what you're up against now, but he knows what lies ahead. He knows not only where you stand now, but he knows what, what and where you will one day be. And regardless of what will come, God's going to be bigger than what it is you face. The Israelites knew how hard life in the wilderness was. They just experienced it firsthand. But don't forget that what scared them was the premise of how hard life would be in the promised land. Remember back at Kadesh Barnea, they made it there. They looked, the spies went in and they came back and they feared what was in the promised land. It also was intimidating to them. And we saw this scene last week, the report of the spies and their response to it in chapter 1, verses 28 through 32. So this is Israel crying out to Moses. They says, where are we going up? Our brothers, that's the spies, have made our hearts melt saying, the people are greater and taller than we. Their cities are great and fortified to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of Anakim there. Then I said to you, do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself 
fight for you, just as he did. You hear Moses pleading with them. Back in Egypt, before your eyes, and in the wilderness, where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son, all the way you went until you came to this place where you are today. God is still here. But the tragic ending, verse 32, yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God. The people wanted what God had for them in the promised land. The problem was they encountered two things which scared them off, two things which seemed too weighty to conquer and not worth what they might get. And that was tall walls and big people. Their cities had big walls, walls up to heaven, walls most famously probably the city of Jericho. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho seven times around the city, walls fell in. They had the Anakim there. Do we not shake at the idea of the Anakim? No, we don't. We have no idea what they're talking about. These were giant people, giant men of war, and we'll see how big they are later on in the text. And here's the thing. The people of Israel have made it this far, not attacking giant fortresses filled with giant people. They realize it's generally not beneficial to success to do those things. It's dangerous. And don't we often think this way, whether you're a believer or whether you're a non-believer? We've cultivated a pretty healthy lifestyle by avoiding things which threaten and clinging to things which comfort. But there are times, and there will be times, where God calls us to turn away from people and things which seem to bring comfort and instead to cling to a Jesus whom we cannot see. And in those moments, we always become calculated risk takers. Is this going to bring me success? This relationship is good. Why would I give this up? This sin is comfortable. It brings me peace. Why would I give this up? It's so easy for us to trust in the weapons of the world or to fear the weapons of the world. But here Moses is saying, you have the God of the world on your side. He knows exactly how fearful it is to march up to a big city with big people. But God is bigger. He knows how fearful it is to seem outmatched and underarmed. But God is bigger. You see, you will have times in your life where compared to the circumstances you're going through, you feel so infinitely small. But it's in those moments where God wants you to see how magnificently big he is. The bigger God gets, the smaller we will naturally feel. And that's where we need to learn to see the goodness of that big, wonderful God. In fact, look at the context. This is where, I love the book of Deuteronomy because we can't almost do anything but laugh at this part. So the charge starts in chapter 2, verse 16 through 19. It says this, So as soon as the men of war had perished and were dead from among the people, the Lord said to me, Today you're to cross the border of Moab at Ar. And when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I've given it to the sons of Lot for a possession. So verse 16, everyone dies, or the men of war die, and then what follows, he's like, you're going to go through this land, don't fight with them, it's going to be great. And then there's this aside Moses gives that we're going to come back to. But then he continues, he picks up in verse 24, and this is what happens. 
rise up, set out on your journey, and go over the valley of Arnon. Behold, I have given into your hand Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land. Begin to take possession, and contend with him in battle. This day I will begin to put dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the heavens, who shall hear the report of you, and shall tremble, and being in anguish because of you. So now, in verses 24 through 26, God is telling Israel, it's no longer a walk through kingdoms. Now is when you're going to fight with kingdoms. Now is when you're going to contend with him. And I love God's sense of humor. Because it's not until all of the men of war die that God says, let's go fight. This is the worst time to start a military campaign. And God says, you guys look ready. Let's go. Let's contend. But remember what God is doing. I am the one who contends for you. I am the one who fights for you. And it's always uncomfortable when we realize it has to be God because we don't have what it takes. But it's always a blessing when we realize that. So remember the big people and big walls? They're coming. They're in these kingdoms. And now let's see what happens as he encounters King Sihon in verses 26 or 30 through 36 is what I'm going to read to you. But Sihon, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might give him into your hands as he is this day. See, Moses right now is reminding him, as he is this day. Whatever's about to happen, remember, you've done this. It's happened. God has been faithful. Verse 31. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have begun to give Sihon and his land over to you. Begin to take possession that you may occupy his land. Then Sihon came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Jahaz. And the Lord our God gave him over to us, and we defeated him and his sons and all his people. And we captured his city at that time and devoted to destruction every city, men, women, and children. We left no survivors. If that jars you, it should. And that will get unpacked more as we go through the book of Deuteronomy. Only the livestock we took as spoil for ourselves with the plunder of cities that we captured. From Aor, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, and from the city that is in the valley, that's the middle of the valley, as far as Gilead, listen here, there was not a city too high for us. The Lord our God gave all into our hands. They took Heshbon, even the cities that have the strategic high ground, high as heaven. They came. They won. The rest is all going to be easy, right? Not so much. It kept coming. Deuteronomy 3, verses 1 through 5. After we defeated Sihon, it says, Then we turned and went up the way of Bashan. And Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all his people, to battle Adriai. But the Lord said to me, Do not fear him, for I have given him and all his people and his land into your hand. And you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So the Lord our God gave into our hand Og also. I love that. There's no description of battle. God says, and he's like, and then it happened. He gave him into our hand. The king of Bashan and all his people. 
and we struck him down until he had no survivors. And we took all his cities at the time. There was not a city we did not take from them. Sixty cities, the whole region of Argob and the kingdom of Og and Bashan. All these cities fortified with high walls, gates, bars, besides were many, very many unwalled villages. So here this untrained rookie army went up against the two most powerful kings on the border of the promised land and knocked him out. Why? Because God was bigger than their walls. What stood behind them was bigger than what stood in the promise. Everything God commanded, he was able to provide. He was faithful to his words. Now, here's one of my favorite portions of this text. And this theme runs all the way. Moses was a brilliant preacher. I wish you had Moses as a preacher because he'd be way better than any of us doing this job right now. Because remember the big, the, the, uh, big people that everyone was scared about? Throughout these two chapters, he's constantly like ribbing his people about these big people. Look back at where he's talking about the land that was given um, to Edom, or Moab, excuse me, in chapter 2, verses 10 through 11. So he's describing the land that God gave to Lot. And look at what he says, verses 1, or 10 through 11. The Emim formerly lived there. Why is that helpful? Why do we care about the Emim? Well, a people great and many, and as tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they are also counted as the Rephaim. But the Moabites call them the Ammon. The people of Esau fought the giant people in one. And then look at what Moses says about the land that was given to Lot in the people of Ammon in uh, verses 20 through 21. It also counted as a land of the Rephaim. Rephaim formerly lived there. But the Ammonites call them the Zamzumim, a people great and many tall as the Anakim. But the Lord destroyed them before the Ammonites, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place. And the Ammonites fought the giant people, and they won. And look at the details that Moses gives after they fight Og, king of Bashan, in uh, chapter 3, verse 11. For only Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. Is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? Nine cubits was its length and four cubits its breadth according to the common cubit. This is a really weird aside if we're not reading Deuteronomy right, isn't it? Here Moses is like, remember that museum in Ramah that had that big giant bed? That was Og's bed. And it was huge according to the common cubit. You guys know the common cubit, right? That's how big it was? No, you don't. Thirteen and a half feet by six feet was his bed. It's bigger than most of your rooms. The point was, remember the big bed? Now it's an empty bed, isn't it? This is where one commentator said that giants are scarcely a problem if they're in their coffin. Why is Moses constantly returning to this? And did you notice, it seems silly, but he's doing something, isn't it? Where he's recounting all the things that these people are called. Some called the big people the Rephaim, which means ghosts. Others call them the Emin, which means terror. Others call them the Anakim, which just means giant. And then there's my favorite, the Zamzumim, which just means a terrifying sound, which is weird. Like, there's far more, this sounds like a bedtime story. The Zamzumim, it's like humming you to sleep. They're called all these things. But Moses calls them nothing in the face of God's promise to his people. 
In this text, there are big people and high walls everywhere, but they're not to be feared. But in this text, there is something deeply to be feared. Unbelief. Look back at verses 14 through 17 of chapter 2. In the time from our leaving Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the book Brook Zered, so that's up at the top um, of the, the land they're taking, was 38 years until the entire generation, that is the men of war, had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. For indeed the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the camp until they had perished. So as soon as all the men of war had perished and were dead from among the people, the Lord said to me. See, in this season of conquering and taking, the only casualty Israel endured were casualties to those who doubted God's promise. Did you hear how intentional Moses' language was in that text? What was going on was clear, punished, afflicted, as the Lord sworn, struck down, perished, and dead. Moses is making sure, hey, everyone, I want, I want you to be clear that those people who were with us who are now dead did not die of thirst. They did not die because of snake bites in the wilderness. They died because I judged them. They stood there at the promised land and they disobeyed and were judged for their rebellion. God is faithful to give grace, but he is just as faithful to judge those who reject his grace. You see, the greatest enemy, the greatest threat we have in this world are not the giants of life, but the enemies that lurk in our own hearts. God will judge you if you spurn his grace. You see, Moses pleaded with these men. We saw that last week. He said, remember this God. Remember Egypt. Remember the wilderness. Remember him carrying us. But they refused. God offered grace. And people rebelled. That same offer stands for you today. God, through Jesus, has offered you grace, and you ought not harden your heart to him. There is something greater to be feared than giants, but by grace, through faith, that something can be on your side. It can be for you instead of against you. Look at how the author of Hebrews reflects on this passage in chapter 3, verses first part, uh, through the first part of chapter 4, 16 says this, for those who heard and yet rebelled, he's speaking of Kadesh Barnea, was it not all those who left Egypt by Moses? In other words, didn't they see? Hadn't they seen God's faithfulness? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? That's the wilderness wanderings. Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see, what do we see? Why did they perish? The author is speaking to you. What do we see in this text? They were unable to enter because of unbelief. Now he's speaking to you. 
Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, for they were not united by faith with those who listened. That is a weightier response, isn't it? We now know what stands against us. Between us and that rest is unbelief. And so I want to ask you here, here we see what God has done. Here we see the problem exposed in the New Testament of unbelief. And so I want to ask you, have you put your faith in that Jesus? Have you realized your greatest problem is unbelief and the only thing that makes up for it is not trying harder or doing things on your own or running into battle like the Israelites did, but it's trusting in the God who's called us to Christ. If you're not a believer today, I encourage you to ask someone around you what that looks like to put unbelief aside because Christ has killed it on the cross. And if you are a believer today, I want to ask you, are you doing that? Are you trusting? Are you believing? Are you obeying this God? Moses is going to talk more about that next week. But as this text goes, we see God's faithfulness to the Israelites in the wilderness. We see God's faithfulness in defeating Israel's enemies. And then in chapter 3, verses 18 through 20, we're not going to look at it here, but what happens is that land of Heshbon and that land of uh, Bashan that they just took, God now gives it to the tribes, specific tribes of Israel. Why is this important? Because now it's not Esau's getting his land or Lot's getting his land. He's saying, you're getting the land. Here you are, dwelling in it, the land I gave to you. You have it. Faithfulness is becoming reality. God has done exactly as he promised. Will he not continue to do as he has promised? And as they sit on the banks of the river, and the tribes of Gad and Reuben and Manasseh are setting up their cities inside the cities they just displaced, Moses wants them and wants you to know one last thing, and that is that God knows your future. God knows your future. Moses makes this point in kind of an odd way. Verses 21 through the end of chapter 3, this is what he says. So chapter 3, verse 21. And I commanded Joshua at the time, your eyes have seen all the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you're crossing. Past performance, future success. You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. There's a little bit of a transition. And I, Moses, pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O oh Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country in Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Go up to the top of Pisgah, that's a mountain we see earlier in the story that we didn't look at. And lift your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward and look at it with your eyes for you shall not go over this Jordan. But charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he shall go over it at the head of the people. He shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. 
and then this little note at the end of location. So we remained at the valley opposite Beth Peor. So here we see Moses speaking, or Joshua, God speaking to Joshua, and then we see Moses going and pleading before God. Now remember, this is Moses' sermon. If you were the leader of God's people, and you are going into a season of transition, and you went to God, and you made a request known to God, and God says to you, enough, don't talk to me about that again. Most of you don't go and write that in your autobiography. But Moses does. He speaks to Israel his failure and the consequence of it. Why? I think there's two reasons. The first is during this time of transition, the people are realizing that the same man who brought them out of Egypt is not the man who's going to bring them into the promised land. And the first reason is that Moses wants them to know that God is still in control. That Moses isn't dying by accident. The future for Israel isn't willy-nilly. God is taking Moses and commissioning Joshua. The blessing of the promised land is not in doubt because the leader is dying. As the author of Hebrews made clear earlier, the promised land that awaits us, New Covenant, New Testament believers, isn't earthly borders, but it's eternal rest in Jesus Christ. And for us to get that rest, it doesn't depend on any man. It depends on one man. Moses' failings in the wilderness caused him to be withheld. In 40 years of wandering in the desert, the people's sin provoked Moses to sin, and because of that, he was judged. But over a thousand years later, Jesus, the greater Moses, would be tested for 40 days in the wilderness by Satan himself, tempted with the sins of humanity, and Jesus passed. And so when the people of Israel look at this and they see Moses, Moses couldn't perform to get into the land. They're thinking, what hope do I have to get into the land? But our hope is a greater hope. Because Jesus passed the test in the wilderness, because Jesus was able to get into the land, so we can go not apart from him, but with him in faith. If we cling to Jesus, the promised land is a certainty for us. You will lose so many things in this life. But if you cling to this Jesus, you will never lose the promise of this rest. Cling to him. And the second reason Moses includes this is I think he wants us to see the wonder of this God. I think he wants us to feel excited about what lies ahead. Moses says, I'm not going to make it, but you will. And I would give anything to see what you're going to see. Look back at Moses' prayer, verses 23 through 24 of chapter 3. I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O oh Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hands. Do you remember what Moses saw? Rivers turning to blood. Gnats invading a city. Boils popping up everywhere. Hail falling from the sky. Oceans parting. Clouds descending. Pillars of fire burning. Manna falling. Moses saw it all. And he says, I have not yet begun to see what your mighty hand will do. And then he says this, for what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? 
Moses is like, the best days, guys, they're coming. The best is yet to come. What God is like our God? What God can point backwards and say, all of that will happen, guaranteed. Bake your life on it. I will be faithful to you. And he needs us to know this because he knows as soon as Israel crosses that river, they will encounter nations which say, your God can't save you. He knows they will encounter the, the prostitutes of Baal who will say, your God can't satisfy you like I can. But Moses says, who is like this God? Who is like this God? I was talking to a friend once who was on an airplane, and um, he encountered this guy who was a Christian next to him. And as they shared his life, this guy had this, one of those wonderful conversions that's featured in like Christianity Today or something, where he was like this methamphetamine biker gang guy and got saved. And, and this guy who was talking to him had been a Christian his whole life, grew up in the church, kind of medium excitement of testimony. And he said to this kind of radical convert, he said, man, what a privilege that God has given you of having that story. And the guy said, are you kidding me? If I could have 20 more years of following Jesus, I would give anything for that. It is better to obey this God and experience his wonders because there is nothing like faithfulness. And here is Moses. He knows, we're going to see in this book, he knows the failures, the hardships, and the toil that lie ahead in that promised land. And yet he wants to go. Why? Because he knows in all of those trials, he will see God faithful through them all. And if at the end of the day, all he knows is God's faithfulness, he has everything he ever wanted. And that offer stands for you. Man, life is going to get hard. But at every turn, you will have the opportunity to respond to this faithful God with obedience. And so we have something so much greater to look at than young fledgling Joshua being commissioned. We have Jesus Christ. And at the cross, we look back at what Jesus did for us. And we say, there's no way that'll stop moving forward. If God was faithful, here. Won't he be faithful there? If God performed faithfully in the past, doesn't that predict a faithful encounter in the future? Well, in closing, Paul answers this for us. It's what I want you guys to consider today. Whatever lies ahead in your car, whatever waits on your phone, whatever you walk into at work or relationally this week, consider this in the faithfulness of this God. Romans 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Here come the enemies. Here come Og. Here comes Sihon. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 
We see twice that we don't see in Deuteronomy, but we see elsewhere. Moses goes as the faithful prophet and intercedes on behalf of his faithless people. And God is gracious to the people. And here we see Moses before God, and no one intercedes for Moses. But Jesus speaks for Moses. Jesus speaks for us. And he says, I will be faithful if you would trust in me. God has given us all things in Jesus to be our faithful God forever. So let's cross the river. Let's see the wonderful things that God has in store for this church. And let's say at the end of all things, who has a God like this God? Let's pray. Hey, Lord Jesus, we have no better prayer than Moses' prayer. Here we sit 2,000 years after the cross, and we can still say wholeheartedly that you have only begun to show the wonderful works of your hand. What lies ahead is greater than what lies behind, and your past success predicts future faithfulness in Jesus Christ. So Lord, win us to him. Cause us to throw aside obstacles of unbelief and fears of big walls and tall people, and instead show us how Jesus has leveled them all. So that though we who have called our enemies by many things may at the end of the day be called by you to see and to rest. We pray this in your name. Amen.